clap on three or three and then clap? Yeah, one, two, three, clap. One, two, three. Hello, Danny. Hello, Alex. This is exciting. It is, isn't it? Speaking of exciting, this is a beautiful segue from nothing into something. Oh, well done. Thank you. I hear you are, you are taking a driving test. So what's the story there? You, you never had a driving license before? No, that's right. So I, I grew up in England where the public transport is better than it is where I am now in America. And uh, I did actually take lessons. I did what most people do. And, you know, at 17, which is the age when you're allowed to begin driving lessons in the UK, I took lessons every week for uh, an embarrassingly long time <laughs> and then I went off to university and uh, which was I was at Oxford Brooks at first so I was in Oxford where you don't need a car a bicycle will get you anywhere you want to go and you can probably walk most places for that matter so yeah after that I just I, I never found I needed a car You've got two years after taking the theory test in which you have to take the practical test. I see. So that two years expired, at which point it was even less likely that I was going to bother to take my practical test because I had to retake the theory test in order to do it. Right. Actually, that's not quite true. Before it expired, one week before it expired, to be precise, Hmm. I did take the practical test once and I failed. Nice. Probably because the pressure of only having one week after the test right. made me nervous and caused me to fail. So I failed that, and uh, there's, a, there's like a waking, waiting list for practical tests, so there wasn't time between that and the expiration of my theory test to book another practical test. So after that, I let my theory test expire and then didn't bother. And then I moved to Japan, obviously, which is where I met you. Yep. And you need a car even less in Japan. <laughs> uh, certainly in, in Kyoto uh, and Kansai, which is the area we were, when you get in, out into the country, I think you start to need one a little more. But yeah. I never really had that issue. So, so that was one thing led to another. And we're now almost 15 years since I started taking those lessons. Yeah. And uh, maybe maybe... 12 or 13 years since I took the test. Yep. Uh, and since I last got behind the wheel of a car, modulo one driving lesson, which I had a few weeks ago. And I'm going to be taking my test in next Wednesday. That's brilliant. It's especially exciting seeing what's going to happen when I have literally been behind the wheel of a car for one hour or two <laughs> hours in the last. 15 years. <laughs> so I'm not 100% confident that this is the ideal time to be taking a test. <laughs> but the instructor assured me that I clearly knew how to drive, so I should just go for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what could possibly go wrong, Danny? Let me give you a little piece of advice, because I actually, uh, in Australia, you take your driving test when you are 16, and uh, the pass mark, at least when I took it eons ago, was 80%. You have to get 80% or above. And I actually scored 80, 81%. And let me tell you why. Oh, well done. This is, this is a good sort of uh, a learning lesson for all potential drivers out there. Uh, my father taught me that when you're approaching a red light, 
you, in, if you're in a manual car, you upshift to slow the car down using the engine, well, essentially using the clutch, I guess. You, you slow the car down using, like, like you hear buses and trucks do. And that way you put less strain on the brakes because obviously the brakes are, are crucial to, uh, to um, automobile safety. You put less pressure on the brakes. It also apparently, I, I don't know the mechanics of it, but it cools down the engine in, in some magical way. Uh, so as you're upshifting, you'll go from fourth to third, and then as you approach the traffic light, third to second, and then at that point, that's when you put your foot on the brakes. So my t- that's how my father taught me to drive when I was like, you know, 15, and go in for the driving test, and um, little did I know that actually in Australia at that time, that's actually illegal to do that. Oh, really? The, the, the reason is, I guess it kind of makes sense that if you do that, if you're upshifting, you're deaccelerating without your brake lights turning on. Oh, I see. So that essentially means that the, the car behind you won't be able to uh, sort of at a glance, won't be able to see that you are coming to a stop right. because you are gradually slowing down with the engine. Right, I So see. I did that during my driving test a total of 19 times. Nice. And they knocked you one mark for every time. Exactly. 1% for every time that I did it. So I wow. just... So you actually got 100% outside. If you, if, you just, if you ignore that thing where your father gave you bad advice, you got 100% in your That's test. Right. I mean, just oh, well driving. Done. Driving's easy. I mean, it's easy. It's, you, you, you'll nail it, Danny. There's, what well, the poss- funny thing is, so I also learned on a manual transmission car 15 years ago. Right. But here in, in America, which is where I am now, which is why I'm taking the test, they all use automatics. Ah. And so this experience a couple of weeks ago when I was taking this first lesson was also my first ever experience of driving an automatic car. How did you find it? I really don't like automatic cars. It's creepy. They, they kind of lurch forwards without, when you take your foot off the brake, right? It's, yeah, so... It's, it's funny, right? I, I knew that an automatic car would be easier in some sense than a manual car, right? And I, I knew that changing gears is not a thing that you need to do particularly, <laughs> right? That is right. a thing that I, I came in knowing that that was the, the main difference. That's a good foundation to start with, Danny. It's a good foundation. Right. So that much I knew. But I hadn't stopped to consider what the the little ramifications of that were. So like you were saying with the, with the downshifting, I, I didn't do upshifting, whichever way around it goes. Um, I didn't do that. But w- when I was learning the thing I did learn how to do, obviously, because you have to, is when you're on a bit of an incline and you come to stop at some traffic lights or at a T-junction or something like that, you have to balance the clutch, right? Right. Um, you know, you sort of slow down a bit and, and hold hold the clutch up just enough so that you're not going forwards and not going backwards. Right. But in an automatic car, there is no clutch. And we came to the first set of traffic lights out of my house. And he was like, okay, stop here. And I'm like, okay, this is great. This is easy. It's like a toy. I just put my foot down on the pedal and it goes. I let go and it stops. Easy. And then the, the lights started turning green. And he's like, okay, go. And I'm like, what? But if I take my foot off the brake now, I'll go backwards and hit the car behind me. (laughs) How do I prevent that from happening when I don't have a clutch? And I got into a bit of a panic and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about this automatic business. What do I do? And I asked the teacher and he laughed and he's like, well, 
you won't go backwards. <laughs> it's just not, it's not a thing that happens. The car just goes forward when it's in drive mode. Oh, oh this is easy, isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, I mean, it's, it's transport for cavemen, really. I mean, let's face it, automatic cars. I mean, real, real, real men, and let's say real women as well, uh, we drive manuals. I mean, really. Uh, of course, you say that until you get stuck in a traffic jam and you're sitting there, like feathering the clutch the whole way for like an hour, swearing right. how much you wish right. you had an automatic. That, that's when the uh, the man and the woman in us in us sort of uh, uh, just sort of flies away for a brief moment. But other than that, you'll be fine. I can't say I'm massively surprised that that is your opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I have to. I mean, obviously, they say that automatics are better for the environment and. I definitely feel like it was a lot easier getting into a car after 15 years, you know, without having driven at all and and then just booking my test straight away. Probably couldn't have done that on a manual. I did quite enjoy the, the you know, clutch control and, and all the rest of it that came with a manual car when I was, you know, when I was taking lessons uh, back in England. But I don't expect I will be buying a manual here. I think I will live with the automatic for now was the left hand side drive right hand side drive was that was that an issue for you you know what it made zero difference that's amazing how is that because that's one thing uh that i'm because i'm at the moment i'm in the middle of a transition to hopefully but who knows but potentially europe and um uh obviously Europe, they drive on the wrong side of the road, much like they do in America. Which is to say the right side of the road. Yeah, see see what I did yes. there? Yeah, that's, um, anyway, uh, that's one thing I'm a little bit nervous about is that, you know, the only experience that I've had with driving on the other side of the road is in racing games. And in racing games, you know, road rules are uh, usually usually not that, not that essential. No. Well, I mean, they're not here either, really, as far as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> No, they are. They're. they're uh, I'm sure they're very strict. Uh, but yeah, so I think the reason it's not a problem uh, for me is because I have never driven much on the left side of the road. Oh, and I see. when I did, it was a very long time ago. So I have, I have been out of it for long enough that I could have started off on you know either the left or the right side, and it wouldn't have particularly made a difference. I don't you're, think. You're but I, when I get used to it. Yeah, like a fresh slate. Yes, I was just going to say, like with a, with a nice clean sheet, a nice clean white sheet of paper. That's what you are, right? Ready to be, yeah. uh, ready to be soiled by the, uh, the 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 terror that is the American road system. Although I, I do hear that uh, California uh, is a little bit better than some other states uh, as far as you know driver etiquettes is concerned. Uh, well, I have no experience of other states. It it doesn't seem too bad there's a thing that a friend of mine who has visited from seattle a couple of times has said which is called i think they call it the the california stop or something like that right where uh they you're supposed to when you when you come to a, a stop sign in the road you're supposed to come to a complete stop before you carry on but apparently in california it's quite common to roll to an almost stop mm. and then and then keep going right. and another thing that is apparently not the case in in washington and is here is here so my friend informs me you're more or less expected to wait a couple of seconds after your light turns green right. before you go because the people coming from the other side on the light that's just turned red 
will just keep coming for a couple of seconds after it turns red. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you go straight away, it's dangerous. And, and you like apparently you actually get dirty looks like for going when the light's green because it was it just hasn't been green for long enough. I don't know. I don't know how true that is, but that is what uh, Pete says. So it's kind. Of, it's kind of like uh, Osaka, where the, the road rules say that green means go, yellow means go faster, and red means go carefully. Right. <laughs> it's a very sort of healthy, positive outlook on life, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Speaking of life, we uh, we should probably just uh, um, take a pause here to uh, mention exactly what this what this wonderful thing that you're listening to right now actually is so this is uh this is our new podcast it's called station 13 because of the uh the legacy of the the uh conversations that we used to have on our way back from um our uh, common workplace in kyoto in japan to osaka there is a station on a certain train line mysteriously called 13 it's not even called i mean that station isn't even called like number 13 or and there's no other numbered stage it's just 13 in fact the whole area is just called 13 isn't it it's kind of uh that they really you know those samurais really ran out of ideas that day didn't they it's like well what are we going to call but you'd expect there to be a 12 and a 14 but there isn't it's just right in the middle of all of these other sort of very standard you know you've got like um all these uh, most of these japanese names have some kind of reference to nature or reference to landscape and then you've got 13 and uh I, I don't know what was happening that day for the samurai, but they just ran out of time and said, okay, what do you want to call it? I don't know. I would just call it 13. Okay, that'll do. One thing that we should probably apologize is that uh, this is being our first episode. There are still a few technical, uh, the, the first time that we're doing it. So I'm actually shouting into the side of my MacBook Pro right now. And uh, I, I believe you're one step ahead of the game there, Danny, with a nice, uh, nice microphone purchase. I have splashed out and bought a microphone, which is apparently the microphone that these podcasting people buy, the, the Blue Yeti for those keeping track. But I still haven't completely figured it out, so I don't know how, how my levels are, and there seems to be a bit of a buzzing, and you uh, will see how it comes out in the edit. But yeah, this is the first time, so... Yeah, you, you, you do sound extremely professional. Oh, thank you very much. So that, that, that's good. Now, um, uh, you had mentioned um, earlier that actually you're at the moment, and actually people who follow the, the millions of followers that you have on Twitter will also be able, will also be able to attest that uh, right now you're in the process of actually migrating mail servers. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking of doing for a long time. I started using Gmail. Uh, probably about the time I failed my driving test, actually. It <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> about 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, it really went downhill from there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that long ago, they had a, a, their Google Apps suite, which I think they now market as Google Apps for Business or something like that. But they used to have a business one and a personal one. And the personal one was free, but you could attach your own domain name to it and you would get all the niceties of Gmail, but you could set up unlimited email accounts. And there were also no adverts in, you know, the normal standard Gmail interface has adverts at the top of the inbox, I believe. Right. But this, this version doesn't. And it still doesn't, actually. I don't know if I've been grandfathered in or quite how this happened, because I believe that 
the closest equivalent you can sign up to now, Google Apps for Business, costs money for each account that you make. Right. But the version that I have, that I've held on to for all this time, didn't. And that was part of the reason I held on to it, because I thought if I let it go, I might not get it back. But, well, everyone knows uh, about Google. (laughs) Right. Uh, There's obviously, I'm not seeing adverts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're advertising background jobs are not scanning my emails to determine what adverts to show me in other contexts. Right. And then there was recently a controversy, controversy is maybe a bit strong, but there was a an issue with a service called unroll.me. Did you hear about that? No, I didn't. What's that about? So there's a service called unroll.me, which the idea was that you would give it access to your email and every time you got a receipt from some service that could send you online receipts, such as Amazon or Lyft or Uber, which are obviously very popular here, or similar services, uh, you would get a receipt and it would pick up on these and pull out the information and then make like a, a personal finance database or something that you could look up, you could track all your receipts essentially, which is a convenient service. But obviously you have to give them access to all your email for them and they're scanning the bodies of your emails in order to achieve this, right? Right. Now, it turns out that they were selling that information to other companies. Right. In particular, they would pull information from Lyft. Are you familiar with Lyft, the sort of competitor to Uber, the other ride-sharing app? Yeah, I only know them by title. I don't know what the difference between them is or, or what the, you know, any context there. The difference, as far as I can tell, is that everyone hates Uber. Right. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, as services go, they're more or less the same. I've switched to Lyft, as as a lot of people have. And I think I slightly prefer the app, but there's not very much difference. Oh, another difference is that Lyft allows you to tip drivers, whereas Uber doesn't. I see. Anyway, uh, this Unroll Me service would pull out information from Lyft's receipt emails right. and sell it to uber wow so uber could look and see where lyft was successful where they were picking people up and dropping them off i haven't looked into the problem in detail so i don't know if they could literally look at their own users and go well this uber user uses lyft between these times or something or switched from uber to lyft recently so we should send them an email to try and persuade them to come back to uber or something like that right but one way or another it's pretty creepy now to be clear This is not Google's problem at all. It is a third-party service, and when you sign up for this service, you explicitly give them permission to access your email. Right. So Google's not really in the wrong in any way. But just sort of the appearance of this story on my newsfeed is what reminded me of how slightly uncomfortable I was about what was happening with my email anyway. Right. The other thing is that there was a, a major, it's a slightly uh, slight tangent, but there was a, a major password leak recently. Mm. Uh, and maybe another time we should have a, a longer conversation about passwords and 
password managers and and finding out whether your password has been leaked because it's quite an interesting topic in sure. its own right. But uh, I got an email from the uh, service Have I Been Pawned, which is a, a good way to find out if your password has been leaked. Mm. And it told me that it, it was my password was one of a number that had been leaked. So I was going through a process of auditing the services I was using and changing all my passwords and, and making sure that was all okay Right. in response to this. And so this question about my email came up at the same time. I thought, well, maybe while I'm going through all this security stuff, now would be a good opportunity to think about what I want to do with my email. Right. And I know that for years you have been using Fastmail, which mm. is an Australian email service, right? That's right. Yeah, actually, uh, I don't use it specifically because it was Australian. I actually, uh, uh, when was it, like 19, around 99 or 2000, I think, um, uh, I had just come off Hotmail, I believe, at that stage. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah, and I was also uh, looking for a new email service, and one of my friends pointed me towards Fastmail. And um, for those who don't know, the at least in those days, the defining difference between Fastmail versus all of the other free email services that were out there back then, of course, the big juggernaut being Hotmail back then, was that Fastmail was uh, uh, capped and limited, limited the amount of bandwidth that you could actually use on a monthly basis for sending and receiving emails. And I remember at the time, uh, most of the other email services out there were sort of unlimited, free, everything, free, free, free forever, that kind of stuff. Um, and something just resonated with me, the idea of this service where they would uh, limit bandwidth essentially so that they could guarantee stability and they could guarantee uptime and they can give guarantee sort of speed. Um, I think it comes. it's also the same with free web hosting. Free web hosting sort of works the same way. You've got two two types. There's the unlimited storage. You can store as much as you like on our servers. And they basically bank on, you know, the like 20% of their users needing that unlimited storage and storing lots of stuff there. And 80% of the users... I don't think it's as much as 20%. I think it's more like 2%. Oh, really? Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. they they, free web hosting banks on the idea that the majority of users are going to have very small websites with very low access. So... Uh, the, the total picture of bandwidth for the server remains fairly manageable, even if you've got one or two extremely heavy users on there. So right. I think that was the strategy for free email at the time. But Fastmail's approach was no, I think we should, you know, we have to keep it, we're going to keep it um, limited for everybody. Therefore, the same level of stability that we can guarantee for everybody. And even though it was a paid service at the time, that, that just seemed, seemed to make some sense to me. That's interesting. So, so it was it was already paid back then, but yes. it was also limited. There was, uh, I think, when I first joined, there was a free tier that was something very, very meager as far as the amount that you could send and receive a month. Uh, and I thought that well, that's obviously not going to be enough, so I'm going to uh, sign up for the lowest tier, which was I don't remember. I think it was. I can't remember the exact number now. Uh, it was very low anyway. But I just found that after using it for a little while that the amount of email that I received and sent that had attachments back in the early 2000s was so low anyway that uh, I never really reached that threshold. So I thought, well, this is great. So, you know, 17 years later, I'm still using them. And um, I think, yeah, back on one of our train rides when we were talking about email servers, I recommended Fastmail to you just simply on the merits, less to do with advertising and less to do with business model 
um, but just more on the merits of it being very stable and reliable. Right. And also uh, one thing which is more of an issue for you than me, I think, because I tend to use an email client. But for you, you're a big fan of the web interface, right? Well, uh, <laughs> let's just say I'm not a fan of the Gmail web interface. <laughs> and I do use email clients uh, for, actually, I use email clients for Fastmail itself. Um, th- that's, I, that's only because I have a number of different email accounts that I need IMAP access to. And right. if only, if there's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, tech investor out there listening to this, what we need is the ability to check IMAP accounts via a web interface. That must be like technically extremely difficult because nobody's done it. Like you can, you can hook up POP3 accounts to Fastmail. So it will actually sort of um, uh, strong arm force its, the email off the server, delete it off the server and bring it down into your Fastmail account, uh, which is the way POP3 works. But there's no way to sort of synchronize a web interface uh, from an email account with another via IMAP. I don't really know why that's not possible, but... Is that do the, the sort of... If you host your own email server, I haven't looked at this in ages, but I used to host my own email server for a while, which is a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, and 10 years ago, it was slightly less terrible, but still pretty bad. Now it's just definitely not worth the effort. Anyway, back then a standard thing you would do in order to get webmail is to host some sort of webmail interface for your own email server. And there was one called Squirrel Mail, I think was the sort of standard lightweight uh, one that everyone used. And there's another one now, I think, called RoundCube or IceCube or something like that. RoundCube, I think it is. Yeah. And maybe it was because they were on the same server they could get away with this, but I thought that they interfaced with the email server via IMAP. Mm. So if you're willing to host your own site, like your own squirrel mail site, you might be able to hook that up into various IMAP servers. I'm not sure. Sounds very look that up. Sounds very complicated. Yeah. I don't know about then taking that and then making it a service that anyone can just put in their own server's IMAP details and just use, you know, rather than everyone having to run their own web server to, to get webmail. So what's, um, uh, how's the migration going from Gmail to Fastmail then? So, well, slowly. It's interesting. <laughs> it, so I, I made two accounts, one for my wife and one for myself. And her account, she only recently switched to using an email address that was under my domain name anyway. So she has an old at gmail.com email address which she still uses and which is obviously still on Gmail. Right. And she has another address, which is in my domain, which we only opened a few months ago. So it didn't have very much email in it. So I was able to migrate her email very quickly. Uh, So I have seen the notification that you get when the migration has completed. And I've actually seen the notification you get when there was a problem with the migration as well, because... I got the settings wrong the first time, so it failed. Right. So I've been through the process, the entire process once, and now I'm doing it for my own email. But I have something like 12 to 15 years worth of email. Right. Which comes to about four or five gigabytes. Okay. Including all the archives and everything. And the first four gigabytes of that, 
I think it's five gigabytes in total. And the first four gigabytes downloaded pretty quickly within a, a day or two. Right. And I can look on the bottom of the folders panel in Fastmail and it says you've used, you know, 3,994 megabytes out of 25 gigabytes or whatever it is. And in Gmail, I can look at the bottom and it's saying you're using uh, five gigabytes out of 15 gigabytes, I think is my limit on Gmail, which is less, interestingly. Because it used to be the, the thing with Gmail, right? Because they gave you tons more than anyone else. But yeah. Anyway, so I'm not, I'm still about a gig off what Gmail is reporting as the total space used by my email. Right. But when it got to that point, suddenly it just slowed right down. And now I find when I log on every morning, the amount that it has migrated, the amount uh, that my email is using goes up by about a megabyte. Okay. And I'm assuming that's because there's some sort of throttling and it's just downloading a little bit. But it might not even be that. It might just be that I'm getting a megabyte's worth of email every day. <laughs> that means it's going to take... So you have an, uh, how many more gigabytes to go? So, well, let's say one gigabyte. So it'll take about three years. Three years. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. But I don't know to what extent it's intelligent about this, but it did pull the most important stuff first in that my inbox in Gmail is completely migrated already. Right. As far as I can tell. And most of my folders are all migrated as well. Right. The thing that is still going is the archive folder, which includes essentially all the emails you've ever got because Gmail encourages you to archive things rather than to delete them. Right. So it even includes, a, it, it's almost all stuff I don't need. Right. So I'm not too fussed, to be honest. I haven't received a notification saying the process is finished. And I haven't received a notification saying that it's failed. So I'm assuming it's still going. And if it comes back to me in three years and says I'm finished, I'll be like, well done, smart, fast <laughs> mail. You, you stuck with it. Yeah, I think uh, it, might be, uh, it might be worthwhile reaching out to support and just asking them what happens in this case where you've got massive, a massive uh, amount to download, uh, to transfer across, because uh, it does sound, well, who knows? I mean, does it, maybe that's the way it's designed to work, and it kind of makes sense that if people are migrating all the time, you know, you're going to want to make sure that uh, you're not overloading fastmail servers with all of this activity with basically emails that aren't really very important to you now anyway. But uh, sure. it might be worth just reaching out to see if that's the way that if that's intended behavior. Yeah, I think I think for the first day or two, I thought, oh, it probably is. It's probably Google. I actually thought it was on Google then. Google is probably throttling it. Right. But it's been about a week now that it's been going at this pace. And now I'm thinking, hmm, this seems a little unusual. So I might contact them. But on the other hand, I'm not I've got no real need to get at these old deleted emails anyway. Right. So I haven't got much impetus to go to the effort to write them an email. Right. So until I'm quite bored <laughs> and I have some spare time and I feel like chasing them up on it, I think the situation will remain as is. Right. Well, good luck with that. But I will say I'm, I'm enjoying using Fastmail. I quite like the, the web interface for the time that I've used it. Yeah. And the switchover was extremely smooth. I told my wife that I was going to be doing it and I, I set it up I, while she was in the bath I just did the whole thing 
Uh, and then a couple of days later, she came up to me and she said, didn't you say you were going to switch the email servers over? When are you, you going to do that? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I already did it a couple of days ago. And she hadn't even noticed because I'd switched over her client. Oh, and I see. Everything just carried on working. Oh, that's great. So, you know, very smooth in that respect. Right. Uh, no, no complaints so far. It is a paid service. It's my first time ever, I think, paying for email. I think... But uh, it's not all that much. Yeah, I think we're coming to the point with technology these days where uh, certainly game game monetization has has seen you know the best and the worst of this whole idea of of uh, um, you know reeling people in with free plans that essentially down the road because it's a business and businesses obviously need people in order to, need people to maintain things and to run them and those people need to be compensated for their time and so obviously making money is going to be the business's end goal of course and some businesses make this is a whole another discussion of course but uh, right you know, this is huge man yeah some some businesses can make it work but uh, there is something to be said for the simple the simple sort of premium traditional idea of you know paying something for a service which kind of sounds funny when you put it like that because that's the way that other than you know electronic commerce that's the way most other things work but uh, right. uh, certainly with email you know i i um uh, with Gmail, I think it's like ten years ago, basically when everybody was jumping onto the the Gmail bandwagon. Uh, I um, had a look at it and I just thought, well, what would I do if Fastmail went down? I would be in a fair amount of trouble. Uh, I have all of my emails on there, so it's think I think it's a fair it's fair to say that I rely on this company. So you know, if they go down and that causes me a lot of trouble, then I guess you know I'm actually helping out myself by helping up them uh, with a little bit of revenue. I'm not much, of course, but, uh, you know, a little bit of revenue. If that if that's what's going to keep my email stable, uh, then that's that's good for me. And so um, that was the point that I came to with uh, when everybody was moving on to Gmail and Gmail was the hot thing. Where I just sort of thought, well, it's probably still worthwhile continuing with this company, even though it costs me, uh, simply because if that gives me the peace of mind to know that uh, uh, I did my part in keeping that company stable, and they do their part in keeping my email stable, then it all it all works out. I suppose so. I mean, I'm I'm not sure whether I'd be willing to bet that Fastmail is the more likely to stay alive and not lose, not go down as a business and not lose your email than Google is. Of course, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's true. But uh, yeah, and one of the nice things about email, which again is a whole other topic, we've got plenty of fodder for future episodes, uh, is that email is, as all the old internet protocols, you know, in general, most of them are, it's a distributed, decentralized model where it is very easy to transfer all of your emails from one server to another. Right. And indeed from a server down to your local computer. Right. And so if there is a problem you can probably quite easily migrate which is is the nice thing about email a lot of people give email a you know a hard time and it has its issues but i i've got a soft spot for email i think it has you know it it does a lot right long live email quite <laughs>